Okay, so happy Mother's Day. So excited to have you ladies with us today. Um, I was blessed growing up. I had a great mom. I have a great mom, a mom who loves my brother and I deeply, who has always cared about us, wise, a source of godly wisdom, very involved in our lives. Um, You should always obey your mom, but I have the kind of mom who who really deserved obedience. Her rules were always fair, always reasonable, always for our best interest. Now, that's easy for me to say as a 35-year-old man. (laughs) But as a child, I did not always feel that way about my mom's rules. And there was one in particular that really turned into this uh, battle between my mom and I. Um, She decided that my brother and I could only watch one hour of TV after school. One hour, that's two cartoons if you're doing the math. And um, I did not feel like that was fair. My friends got to watch a lot more TV than that. I deserved to watch more than two cartoons a day. And so when she was out of the room busy with other stuff, I'd turn the TV back on. I would break the rules. And, and that was a problem in our home. And so my mom and dad came up with an ingenious solution. My dad went down to Home Depot and bought the parts to build this homemade lockbox over the TV's power system. So you had to have the key to turn it on. Problem was, I was born an engineer. <laughs> it took me minutes to figure out how to jimmy that lock with a paper clip and turn the TV back on. So, um, parents, just so you know, it is not always a good thing to have clever kids. <laughs> they just cleverly figure out how to break the rules. Now, I was a pretty good kid growing up. Pretty good kid. So why, in this case, did I pick the lock and rebel? Because I disagreed with the rule. I did not like the rule, and so I did not submit. And now as a 35-year-old man, I find that that same tendency is still true of me. I find it hard to submit when I disagree with the rule. When I do not agree with those in authority over me, submission is hard. It's easy when I agree. When I trust them, when I like the decisions they make and the rules they set, then submission is easy for me. But when I don't, it's really hard. And that's where Paul is going to take us in our passage this morning. You can turn to Romans 13. Romans 13, Paul is going to look at our need to submit to our authorities even when we do not agree with them. Let me review, though. Let me review just for a moment. Romans 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11 were all about, the, about theology, the, the theology of God's righteousness. Chapters 12 through 16 are all about application application of that righteousness. How do you live a righteous life? How do you live the life that is well-pleasing to God? And the big idea that we laid out right there at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul gives us three commands in the first two verses of chapter 12 that are the big idea of everything else that follows. If you want to live a righteous life, then three things. Number one, every day present yourself to God as an act of worship. Present everything you are, everything you have, all of you to God as a sacrifice of worship. Do that instead of presenting yourself to the world. Don't be conformed to the ways of this world. Instead, become transformed through the power of your spirit. Now, Paul just lays that out really quickly in two verses, and then he takes the rest of chapter 12 all the way through the end of chapter 16 to apply that to our lives. What does it look like, practically speaking, to live this transformed life, this life that is well-pleasing to God? And Paul gives us these specific, concrete steps. We've looked at three of them so far. We're to use our spiritual gifts to serve one another. 
We're to love one another. That means to be sacrificially devoted to one another, to other believers. We're to love even people outside of the church. That was last week's passage. Even our enemies, we're to love our enemies. And then we get the next step in this week's passage. Look at chapter 13, just the first verse of chapter 13, first part of the verse. Paul says, the big idea of our passage this morning, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Governing authorities, that's not government in principle. That's not all governments in the world. That's the government that God has placed over you individually. So for, for us, sitting here in College Station, 21st century, what Paul is saying is we're to be in subjection to our federal government, our state government, our local government, and all those people whom our governments appoint, including policemen, judges, city managers, whoever it might be, all those people whom God has placed in authority over us, those are our governing authorities. And we are to be in subjection to them, literally to submit ourselves to them. Now this word submit, that's a word that Paul uses a lot. A lot. If you've read his letters, you'll see submit or submission often. He talks about how all things are to be submitted to Christ. Christ is submitted to God the Father. All of us are submitted to one another. Wives are submitted to husbands. Servants are submitted to masters. And now in this passage, we as citizens are to be in submission to our government. Now what does that mean, to be in submission or to submit? The basic meaning of that word submit in Greek is to place under the authority of another, to place under someone else's authority. That's the basic idea, and in most places, including here in Romans 13, it's talking about voluntary submission, not forced submission. Paul's not writing to the government telling the government, subjugate your citizens. No, he's writing to us as citizens, willingly, voluntarily submit yourself to government. It's a choice we make. Be willing to submit yourself to government. And when Paul uses that word submit, it's, it's helpful to understand that Paul doesn't just mean our actions. This idea of submission, it means to respect one's place in the authority that God has created. And so therefore, it involves not just our behavior, but our words and our attitudes as well. Submission includes all of me living in respect to the authority God has placed over me. Not just behavior, but words and attitudes as well. And that kind of leads to a, a summary definition. To submit to our governing authorities is to recognize, respect, and obey those who are in authority over us. Recognize, respect, and obey those who are in authority over us, our governing authorities. Paul is certainly not alone in this command. Jesus talks about this on multiple occasions. So does Peter. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2.13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Every. It's, It's a blanket statement. There are no exceptions to every human institution. Now that is easy to do when we like our governing authorities, right? When they're the people you voted for. When they make decisions you approve of, when you trust them, when you trust that they have your best interests in mind, then submission is easy. But what about when that's not true? What about when it's not the people you voted for? What about when you do not trust them? What about if they are corrupt or unrighteous? What about if they make decisions you do not agree with? Do you still have to submit? And the answer is yes. 
Yes, these are blanket statements. No exceptions are allowed. And it's really helpful to know who Peter and Paul had in mind when they used the phrase governing authorities. Who was their governing authority? At the very top of the chain, a guy named Nero, Emperor Nero. Here's how history summarizes Nero. Nero's rule is often associated with tyranny and extravagance. He is known for a number of executions, including those of his mother, Happy Mother's Day, and stepbrother. Nero was reportedly unsatisfied with his marriage to Octavia and entered into an affair with Claudia, a former slave, and then had his wife Octavia executed. To consolidate power, Nero executed a number of people in 62 and 63 AD, including his rivals Pallas, Rebellius, and Faustus. According to Suetonius, Nero showed neither discrimination nor moderation in putting to death whomsoever he pleased. The non-Christian historian Tacitus describes Nero extensively torturing and executing Christians after the fire of 64, and according to tradition, he was the emperor during the executions of both Peter and Paul. That's the guy who they say to submit to. Literally a madman. The guy was literally insane, murdered tons of people, persecuted and killed Christians, would end up killing Paul himself, and yet Paul says, submit, submit, even to a guy like Nero. Peter summarized it this way in a related context, how servants are to submit to their masters. He says, servants be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, literally in Greek, to those who are perverse, who are twisted, who are crooked, submit even to them. Actually, the Bible only gives us one exception. One exception to the rule of submission, and that is when our governing authorities tell us to do something that is in direct contradiction to a clear command of God. If it's in direct contradiction to something God has commanded in Scripture, that is the only time we have permission from God to disobey. And, and that actually comes out of the word submit. It's really instructive and important that Paul used the word submit rather than obey. They're separate words in Greek. Obey is really simple. It just means do what the guy tells you to do. If he used obey, then you'd have to obey all the time. Submit is more nuanced. It means respect the authority God has placed in your life. And this is what our authority structure looks like. The hierarchy that God has set up for us is God, then government, then me. God, then government, then us. Now, that means if the authorities above us, God and government, are in conflict, who do you follow? The guy at the top. You always follow God. God always trumps government because that's the hierarchy he has set up. So if there's conflict between the two of them, you always obey God first. And that did happen a a few times in scripture. We have a few examples of that. Like back in Exodus, the midwives of the Israelites are given a command from the wicked king of Egypt, from Pharaoh. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. Okay, so they know from God, thou shalt not murder. The king says murder, they say no. Okay, so that's a a clear example. Peter and Paul had a similar situation, book of Acts. 
the high priest, who was the authority figure for Peter and Paul, questioned them saying, or Peter and John, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, that is the name of Jesus, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So if you have a situation where your commanding authorities, your governing authorities are telling you to do something that directly contradicts God, then you go with God. God always trumps government. Now, notice, however, when you go with God, when you disobey the government, you do so in a respectful way. It's interesting. The midwives, Peter, John, Daniel, none of them tried to undermine the corrupt authority over them. None of them did that. They did not disrespect the people over them. They spoke kindly to them. Even as they say, we can't obey you, they still did it respectfully and they assumed the consequences for their actions. They welcomed the consequences of their actions. So you disobey, but you do it respectfully. Now, the good news, however, for us is I really don't think we're gonna need to face this anytime soon. Here in America, now if you lived in Saudi Arabia, maybe this would be an exception you would have to apply today. Actually, to be at church, you might be applying it right now. But we don't live there, we live here in America. And right now, this exception doesn't apply to any rule on the books that I'm aware of. No rule that is being enforced upon us that causes us to go against a direct command of Scripture. So the exception doesn't apply to us right now, at least for the time being. And that means we gotta submit. We got to obey and respect those in authority over us. And again, it's really easy when we agree with them, when we like them, when they are honorable people. But what about when they're not? It's so hard. It is so hard to submit when we disagree with those in authority over us. Paul knows it's hard, and so he gives us motivation. That's where he goes next in the passage. He tells us why. Why should we submit to those in authority over us, even when we disagree with them? Paul gives us two pieces, two um, reasons why we should obey. The first one is primary, and he presents that in verses one and two. He says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Paul's first reason, the primary foundational reason why we are to submit to those in authority is because their authority is ordained by God. And notice Paul's language. It's another blanket statement. It allows no exceptions. Every person who is in authority over us was put there by God, whether they arrive there by means of a popular vote or appointment or bribery, corruption, military conquest, does not matter. Everyone in authority is there by God's sovereign choice. This is a corollary. It flows logically from the fact that the Bible presents a sovereign God. A God who has all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, all people who are in authority are there by his choice. Daniel puts it this way. Daniel 4.32, the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Whomever he wishes. And that's true both of good rulers and bad rulers. Think back to Romans 9. What guy did we read about in Romans 9? Pharaoh. An incredibly wicked king, a king of Egypt who enslaved and killed God's own people, the Jews. And yet Romans 9 says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. 
God put Pharaoh in charge. Even though Pharaoh never acknowledged God, even though Pharaoh killed God's people, still God was the one who put him in charge. God was the one who placed him there. And therefore, Paul says, we must submit. We must submit to our governing authorities because God is the one who put them in their place. And because God is the one who put them in their place, to resist your government is to resist God. To oppose your governing authorities is to oppose God and therefore to come under God's judgment. Literally, his his discipline comes upon us if we oppose our governing authorities. Now, that always raises in people's minds, wait a minute. What about incredibly corrupt governments? Is it ever okay to revolt against your government, to seek the overthrow of your government? And everybody's mind automatically goes to who? The Nazis. What if you lived in Germany during World War II and your government is the Nazis? Surely we should overthrow the Nazis, right? Well, um, let's look at it biblically. Biblically speaking, you should certainly, as a citizen of World War II Germany, you should certainly disobey the Nazis. When they tell you that you need to turn in Jews to be executed, you say no. You do it respectfully, but you say no and you take the consequences. So you disobey the Nazis, but should you actively be seeking their overthrow? The assassination of Hitler, something like that. Well, biblically speaking, that's a really hard question. You can make a case for yes. The Nazis were just so evil, so repugnant that righteousness would seek their overthrow. You can also make a case for no. Because remember, as bad as Hitler is, he was no Nero. And Paul and Peter said, submit, not assassinate, not revolt, not seek the overthrow of Rome. So you can make a case either way. It's a gray issue. There needs to be charity both ways. Really hard issue biblically. Good news, it does not apply to us. We do not have to worry about that. People get hung up on that theoretical issue. You don't live under the Nazis. The United States government is nothing like that. We don't need to worry about overthrowing our government. For us, we are called to submit because, first and foremost reason, we know that every one of our government officials was put there by God. Our president our congressman, our governor, our representatives, our mayor, all of them were put there by God. No matter how they arrived at their office, God is sovereign, and so they're there by his choice. So we must submit. You submit to them not because they are worthy of your submission, but because God is. God is worthy of us to submit. It's interesting some of the language that Paul uses. If you just jump ahead a little bit to verse four, you'll notice that Paul calls these governing authorities, including Nero, ministers of God to you. That's the same word we use for deacon, a God-appointed servant. That's who Paul thinks of Nero as. That's incredible to think about. Your governing officials are God-appointed servants, even if they never recognize God, even if they don't obey God, even if they don't honor God, because our God is sovereign, they are there by his choice. They're his servants. That's why Peter told us back in 2.13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You submit yourself to your president, your congressman, your governor, not because they are worthy of your submission, but because God is, and God put them there. So you submit to them as an act of submission to God. Submit to your governing authorities because that's submission to God. If you resist them, you resist God himself and incur his judgment. That's the first and primary reason that Paul gives us for why we are to submit to those in authority over us. The second reason um, is purely pragmatic. Pragmatic reason in verses three and four. Look there, verses three and four. 
For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For as a minister of God, do you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For as a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Paul is talking pure pragmatics here. Why should you submit to the government? Because the government was appointed by God to promote good and punish evil. That is God's purpose behind government. God set up human government, and this is the fundamental reason to promote good and punish evil. And so, why should you submit to government to avoid their punishment? God has given government the sword. That's a metaphor for punishment of crime up to and including the death penalty. God has entrusted that authority to our government. Now, last week we studied, end of Romans 12, that vengeance does not belong to us as individual believers. We are never to take vengeance for crime, but it does belong to the government. That prohibition does not apply to the government. The government is God's ordained instrument of punishment on earth to praise those who do good and punish those who do wrong. And so, very pragmatically speaking, we obey the government out of a desire to not incur their wrath, to not get on the wrong side of the law. Now, again, there are a lot of governments who are not living out verses 3 and 4. Unfortunately, in this world, there's lots of governments who praise corruption and punish those who are righteous. In that case, you still have to submit because reason number one, motive number one, is still valid. They're still there by God's choice. But for us, it's not an issue. Fortunately, we live in the United States, and by God's grace, the government of the United States, the state of Texas, the city of College Station, they do, in general, punish those who commit crimes and praise those who keep the law. And that's a valid reason for us to submit. Then Paul summarizes these two motivations in verse 5. He says, Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, that's the pragmatic reason, to avoid their punishment, but also for conscience sake. That's back to the first motivation. Submit because your conscience knows they're there by God's choice. Submitting to them is submitting to God. Okay, so... Now that Paul has defined what submission is and given us the reasons why we should submit, now let's get to application. What does submission to government actually look like for us living in a democracy? In 21st century America, right here, what does it look like for us to submit ourselves to our governing authorities? Let me give you four practical steps of what this looks like for us. Step number one, how do we apply this passage in a democracy? Obey. By obeying the law. That's wrapped up in the very definition of the word submission. It's bigger than obedience, but it includes obedience. We must obey the law with one and only one exception if the law commands us to do something that directly contradicts Scripture. But as I said earlier, I don't think any of our laws do that. So for us, blanket statement, obey the law. Now, we know that, but for many Christians, we find it hard to obey certain laws, don't we? There's there's a few that really can trip believers up. A few that, that came to my mind this week as I was thinking about it. The speed limit trips us up all the time, myself included. Underage drinking, especially in a town, a college town like College Station, and illegally downloading movies or music, not paying for the content that you consume. These are three areas that even Christians often fall short of because we often feel like they are small. Okay, don't murder someone. I understand that law and I will obey it, but obey the speed. Well, what about five miles an hour over? 
No one's really going to care about that. No police officer is going to feel compelled to come pull me over for five miles an hour over. And what I am forgetting when I break what I am perceiving to be a small law is in God's eyes, no law is small. In God's eyes, sin is sin. One mile an hour over, if you are consciously choosing to do that, is sin to God. It is rebellion. And we come under his judgment and his discipline when we do it. This is really convicting for me. I imagine it's convicting for you as well. God uh, allows no excuses, no exceptions to the rule. We are to be model citizens, to obey the law to the letter every time because it's serious to God. Even if we're never caught, going five miles an hour over the speed limit, I will probably never be pulled over by a policeman for that because they've got better things to do. But guess what? God doesn't care whether I get a ticket or not. In God's eyes, I sinned. We must obey. We submit to the law, not for the sake of our governing authorities, but for God's sake. So obey the law, all of it. Obey the law to the letter. And then Paul gives us one particular, very relevant way that we obey the law. Look with me at the next verse, verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, customs to whom custom. Paul gives us a specific type of obedience pay our taxes by tax he means direct taxation by customs he means indirect taxation like fees and customs duties things of that nature Paul wants us to be clear we must pay our taxes and Paul here it's very significant what he does he tells us in these verses that actually taxation is biblical now for some of us um, economic conservatives in the room that's going to shock us taxation is biblical God ordained taxation because he ordained government. And government needs funds in order to promote justice and punish wrongdoing. And therefore, taxation is biblical. God set up taxation to support the government that he ordained. And so we must pay our taxes, all of them, every cent that we owe. Paul presents it, he says that that we are rendering to them what, what we owe. It's an obligation. We as citizens are in God's eyes obligated to our governing officials to pay them our taxes. If we cheat them of our taxes, we are actually cheating God. That's, that's the connection that Paul makes here. To pay less than your, than your share than what you owe of taxes is to cheat God himself. Now that always brings to our mind the question, what if our governing officials are using our tax money for things that are bad, for things that are immoral, for things that we do not approve of? Should we then not pay our taxes? Well, but wait a minute. What was Nero using Paul's tax money for? He was building pagan temples dedicated to idolatry. He was building gladiatorial stadiums where people fought to the death. He was using it to support wars of conquest. He was using it to pay for lavish, immoral parties where they actually burnt Christians at the stake. That's where Paul's tax money went, and he said, pay it. Pay it. You pay the government the money it it is obligated to receive, not because the government is worthy of it, but because God is worthy of it. Now, there is a cool thing here. What this means is that when you pay your taxes on that day in April, in God's eyes, it is actually an act of worship. I hope that will make it a little less painful. In God's eyes, it is an act of worship. You are obeying God. You are saying, God, they're not worthy, but you are worthy. This is what you have set up. And in obedience to you, I will pay every cent I owe every cent I owe because you are worthy. You are worthy of this money. 
Jesus put it this way, a passage many of you are familiar with. He was asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then Jesus, looking at a coin with Caesar's inscription, said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Yes, in other words, Jesus says, pay every penny you owe. Pay your taxes. Be a good citizen, an example to the world of one who pays faithfully. Third specific step of living this out in a democracy Give honor and reverence to those in government. Look at the end of the passage, second half of verse seven. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Honor means to to give respect to someone in your words. You, You respect them in your words. You do not demean them. You do not ridicule them, whether to their face or around other people. That's what honor looks like. Fear is an interesting word in Greek. It it has a range of meaning from terror on one side, which is what meaning it has in verse three, terror of punishment, uh, to respect or reverence. And that's what it means here. We are to revere those in authority over us because God put them there. And so Paul is challenging us with our speech and with our attitude to give honor and reverence to those in authority over us. Now, in a democracy, it is godly, it is righteous for us to voice our disagreement with politicians whom we disagree with and to voice our desire to have someone else run the country or whatever it might be. You can do that within a democracy. That is legal. However, as you are voicing your views, make sure you do so with great respect, with nothing but respect for those who are in office. Whether they deserve that respect or not, that doesn't have anything to do with it. You do it out of obedience to God because he does deserve it. So you respect those in authority over you. The president congressman, governor, whoever it might be, your words and attitudes convey respect even if you disagree with them. Now, very practically speaking, I think this is really relevant because in the last decade, politics has come to be um, just consumed in hate and fear in our country. I'm sure you've seen that. Everything political is just so charged these days, so full of hate and fear. And for us as Christians, what we need to understand is that hate and fear should never characterize our lives, not even when we engage in politics. We should hate no one. Remember chapter 12, love everyone in this room and everyone on earth. Love them, be sacrificially devoted to your president, to your congressman, to everyone in government. We should hate no one and we should not fear anything. Politics is so consumed by fear. What do we have to be afraid of? Tell me, what what do we have to be afraid of? Our God is sovereign. Our God will protect us. Our God will protect our kids. Our God will protect our grandchildren. Our God will protect everything that we value. So we have no reason to fear. Don't let hate or fear consume your engagement with politics. Instead, be a model of love and grace, charity and honor to those in charge. Respect them because of their office, because God put them there. Whether they deserve respect or not, be a model of honor in how you speak of them and about them. Now, very practically speaking, one one really concrete way that we can give honor and reverence to those in authority over us is pray for them. Pray for them regularly. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Pray for the salvation of our government. Pray for the salvation of the men and women engaged in the federal government, state government, local government, for police officers, for judges. Pray for their salvation. Pray that God would bless them, that God would protect them, that God would work in their lives to grow them in righteousness. Pray for their good. That's a way that you honor and respect the fact that God put them in that place. 
Okay, so obey the law, pay your taxes, give honor and reverence. For Peter and for Paul, that's pretty much where the list ended because they lived under an empire. For us, we live in a democracy, so fortunately, we get a fourth step. A fourth step, exercise our authority wisely. Great, great thing about democracy. For one day every two years, we're the folks in charge. One day every two years, we get to be in charge when we go vote. And God wants us to exercise that authority that we have over government once every two years. He wants us to exercise it wisely. Vote wisely. Be an informed voter. We need to vote in a way that honors God. God claims all of our lives, including how we vote, so we need to vote in a way that pleases him. I'm watching the time. I have only a few minutes, so I'm going to run very fast through my biblical guide to how you vote. Biblical guide to how you vote in a way that honors the Lord. I'll just run through five quick steps. You can look at this later online. But this is how I perceive voting. How should we vote? Um, Number one, when you walk into the voting booth, be a Christian, not a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent. Your loyalty is not to a party. Your loyalty is to God. Now, that loyalty may cause you to vote for a certain party, fine, but remember, your identity is a follower of Christ, not a member of some political party. So vote in a way that pleases God. He is the one to whom you are loyal. Second, compare candidates' views against God's word. When we think about who to vote for, we need to understand, biblically speaking, charisma counts for nothing. Speaking ability counts for nothing. What matters is how a candidate's views line up with scripture. How his statements or her statements or decisions or beliefs line up with what God reveals to be true. And so if you're going to compare their views to God's word, you have to study two things. Study God's word and study their views. Be an informed student of God's word and be an informed voter. Spend time in God's word so that you understand what God thinks about the issues of the day and spend time studying each candidate's positions. Know them and then prayerfully go before the Lord and pray, God, show me. Show me how each candidate lines up with what you value, with what you reveal as true. Let God's word be your guide. Let me encourage you to to spend more time seeking God's direction through his word than you do listening to talking heads on the radio or on TV. Their views aren't what matters. What matters is God's word. Let it be your guide. Take candidates' positions to scripture and let that be your judge. Now, unfortunately, you will almost never have a case between voting for a guy who perfectly lines up with scripture and a person who doesn't at all line up with scripture. Usually you're having to make some hard calls. So when neither candidate perfectly lines up, how do you make a choice? Couple principles, prioritize what God prioritizes. Prioritize what God prioritizes. As you study scripture, try to get a sense of what does God care most about. I will give you an example. In my study of scripture, I've come to the conclusion that God values and cares about sanctity of life more than he values and cares about economic policy. It's just in terms of what God most cares about. Economic policy, somewhat important. Life, very important. So I'm gonna prioritize that issue when I'm voting. Similar principle, prioritize what God is clear about. Scripture is not clear on all issues that will be involved in the upcoming election. So prioritize those issues that God speaks clearly about. Another example, I believe that God and particularly Jesus have spoken very, very clearly about marriage, about what marriage is in God's eyes. That's very clear in scripture. Tax policy, not so much. 
Which tax policy does God prefer? I don't know. God doesn't talk about that. He does talk about marriage. So you prioritize those issues which God is clear about, which his word reveals clearly. And then as you prioritize these things, as you go to the voting booth with an informed decision and vote based on your conscience and conviction, let me finally encourage you, then be gracious to those who vote differently. So often we fail on that count. We arrive at our convictions and we're so sure of them that when we hear of a believer voting differently, we get angry about it. Don't. Don't get angry about that. Respect that the Spirit moves each person. That the Spirit is is leading us in the word that none of us have figured it out perfectly and be gracious to those who vote differently. Settle your convictions, vote based on your convictions, but share grace with those who don't share your convictions. So, how to vote wisely, few quick steps. Finally, in addition to being an informed voter, I encourage you to participate as God leads you. That's the other great thing about democracy. We can participate. You're not born into government in a democracy. You don't enter into government through military conquest. Any of us can be involved. And let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to be involved. Be involved. If you are a gifted, uh, if you're gifted at political science, if you are actually wise enough to understand tax policy, which I am not, if you are gifted that way, then maybe God has prepared you to enter into politics. Maybe he wants you to enter into politics so you can be a Christian voice in government. I know for many people, especially of of my generation and younger, uh, we tend to be very cynical about politics. (laughs) We tend to feel that politics is inherently dirty and evil, and so we want nothing to do with it. That's not biblical. Politics can often be dirty, but it can often be an area where we can please and honor God. And so if you are gifted in that way, then it can be very godly for you to participate in politics. You would be joining a great heritage. People like William Wilberforce, a believer who entered politics so he could bring an end to slavery. Maybe you will be the next William Wilberforce if God has gifted you that way. So be involved in politics as God leads. Also, maybe instead of giving you those kind of gifts, what God has really given you is a passion for some social issue that the Bible speaks about. Maybe you have a passion for alleviating poverty or for bringing um, cures to various diseases or for um, bringing an end to abortion or, or increasing adoptions, whatever it might be. Maybe you have a passion for some issue that the Bible cares about. Let me encourage you to get involved politically in that thing, to use whatever gifts you have to advocate for that, to communicate that need, to be involved in it, to give to it, to volunteer for it. Be involved in the things that are going on in this planet because God wants us to be model citizens, good citizens who honor and glorify him. So be involved, exercise your authority wisely in this democracy. Final thing that I'll leave you with, as we engage with the government, let us remember that as, even as we submit to the government, even as we respect and honor the government, let us remember who is ultimately in charge. And at the end of the day, no matter what anyone says on talk radio or on the news stations, the only thing that is going to fix America isn't politics, it's God. At the end of the day, God will fix it. So do this wisely, but remember, at the end of the day, whoever gets voted in in November, no big deal to God. No big deal to God. Because he's sovereign, he's the one who's going to fix everything, and he's already begun to do that in the gospel, which is ultimately the greatest hope for mankind. Not some political party, but the gospel. That God has already begun to set all things right in the world by sending his son Jesus to die for our sins and rise from the dead. Jesus is now in charge. Everything belongs to him. That's what we praise and celebrate today. 
If that information that I just shared is new to you, if you've never thought about God offering you forgiveness of your sins and eternal life, simply by believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, I'd encourage you to come talk to me or someone else here this morning. That's the greatest news that we have for you, that God has already begun to fix everything that's wrong in this world, and he wants to give that solution freely to you. Finally, I I want us to go before the Lord in prayer and ask God to help us as we prepare in our nation for another political season. Let's pray that God will help us to be good, righteous citizens. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we have no reason to hate or to fear because you are sovereign. You are God of heaven and earth. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything bows before you. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we can trust you completely. We pray that you would help us to be people who trust you, who walk with you, who love other people because we trust in you. We we need to hate no one. I pray, Father, that your spirit would convict us uh, each individually, Lord. Maybe there are areas of our lives where we have not been applying this passage. Maybe there are laws that we have been breaking because we just feel that they're no big deal. Everybody breaks those laws. You don't care about those laws, Lord. I pray... Through your spirit, Lord, help us to believe and see that you do care, that you want us to be models of obedience to our governing authorities. Help us to obey well, Lord. Help us also to respect those in authority over us with our words and our attitudes, even if we disagree strongly with their positions. Help us to respect them as people made in your image, people whom you so love that Jesus died for them. And right now, Lord, we lift up those who are in authority over us, from our president all the way down to our city mayor. Lord, we pray that for all of them, if they don't know Christ Jesus, that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and bring redemption to them. We pray, Father, that you would work in our lives to help us to be model citizens who show others the truth and glory and love of the gospel through the lives that we live as we engage with this nation. Thank you so much, Lord, for the place that we live, the freedoms that we have, but thank you most of all that above all else we have your son, Christ. In his name we pray, amen.